Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to episode 39 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I am Kyle, still your host for another week of podcast excellence. This week, we are going to wrap up our series on unethical human experimentation with probably my favorite story. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean I approve of anything that happened in this story. I don't really uh, like the things that were done in this story, in fact, they are pretty terrible and awful to even hear about for any amount of time. But for me, this is probably the the, the most fleshed out story when it comes to all the, the four stories that we'll have done uh, this month. This week and the final week of June, we'll be talking about Unit 731. Unit 731 was a Japanese operation and it is awful it is terrible, and not only will you be mad hearing about what happened, but you'll basically be mad with the conclusion of the story as well. Isn't that kind of how it's gone this week, really? We, we, we talk about these stories, and pretty much nobody ever suffers the consequences of their actions with these stories. Really, um, the Aversion Project, which, if you haven't heard, is last week's episode. Go ahead and go back and listen to that one as well. Uh, Aubrey Levine, the man who was perpetrating most of those crimes, pretty much got away scot-free until very recently, where he's now serving jail time, finally. But it took a long time to get him. Uh, the guy doing the Stanford prison st- study, uh, Zimbardo, basically we think nowadays probably actually just made up half the shit that happened. And anyway, nothing really crazy happened to him either way, regardless, you know, anything that happened. And then the United States Public Health Service that uh, did the syphilis study, which is our episode a couple of weeks ago, um, the most popular episode of this month, by the way, um, basically got away with it also completely. Obviously, they were slapped on the wrist, those who perpetrated those crimes, but the U.S. Public Health Service is still a fully functioning service in the United States. And honestly, they've they've gotten a great deal better. They do a lot of really important work. But that doesn't really justify the fact that they uh, basically let a bunch of people have syphilis and refuse them treatment under dubious circumstances. Anyhow, we are going to finally end our month uh, this week here with Unit 731, another story of, of terrible peril and awfulness, uh, I was thinking about doing um, some stories about Nazi experimentation as well, and there definitely was in concentration camps uh, all over the European front during World War II. Those stories, though, are very similar to Unit 731, actually extremely similar. It's kind of interesting how between these two Axis nations, Japan and Germany, how very similar the uh, medical experimentation on human beings was. Now, the Germans mostly did it against those who they imprisoned in their camps because of of whatever reason, whether they be Jewish people or, you know, any other minority that they chose to uh, lock up and, and do what they had to do on, whereas the Japanese basically just did it to anybody they had locked up, no matter why they were locked up. Uh, it was kind of a... It was similar yet a little bit different, um, but in the end, it, it, it's very similar, so I decided not to do a separate episode on Nazi stuff because it would just be basically the same episode with a different skin on it. So without further ado, let's talk this week about the Japanese Unit 731 of World War II, one of the most terrible human experimentation stories that I've ever heard. Guys, Knowledge from the Couch Podcast, stick with me.
All right, guys, Unit 731 or Unit 731, whichever way you like to think of it. Uh, Unit 731, as I'm going to refer to it, actually was not in uh, Japan itself. It was not on the island of Japan. Rather, it was over in Pingfang in China, which is uh, basically a straight shot north uh, of the Korean Peninsula. So if you're in North Korea and you're heading north, you would go a couple of uh, districts or counties or states, however you want to think of it, in China, and you would fall upon the area where this thing was. Um, basically, it was a, a very large campus of buildings, um, and it was officially known by the Japanese government as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department of the Kwatung Army. This was its original and basically cover designation um, the way it was originally set up. Uh, the facility, as we get you know through the, the regular description of the area, was pretty vast, actually. Um, Unit 731 covered 6 square kilometers, or 2.3 square miles, in that area, and consisted of more than 150 buildings. The design of these buildings made them really, really difficult to... Uh, bomb and destroy, which came uh, to great effect for this area in particular. Uh, and the buildings were used in, in various different ways. You have so many buildings, you have so many ways to do the things that you have to do that are terrible. Uh, it was said that about 4,500 containers were used in this facility, in the facilities, excuse me, to raise fleas, uh, different types of fleas that would contain different kinds of diseases, six cauldrons to produce various chemicals, and around 1,800 containers to produce biological agents. Approximately 30 kilos of bubonic plague bacteria could be produced in a small amount of days. There was also a medical school and research facility that was uh, satellite connected to Unit 231 that actually did operate, operate excuse me, in the Shinjuku district of Tokyo during the Second World War. In addition, there was a facility in an area called in Guangzhou, Unit 8604, which was a place that was very popular uh, in southern China where they typically bred and produced a lot of the bubonic plague uh, carrying rats that they would use in some of the experiments. And some of these rats did end up making their way up to Unit 731. So how did this place the official quote-unquote Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department, how did Unit 731, as it was actually known, come to be? In 1932, the Surgeon General Shiro Ishii, and remember that name, this guy is the uh, Aubrey Levine of our story. He is the, the main villain of our tale. Shiro Ishii, who was the Chief Medical Officer of the Japanese Army at the time, was placed into command of the Army Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory of Japan. He eventually organized a secret research group, which he called the Togo Unit, uh, and they did various uh, chemical and biological experimentation in Manchuria. Manchuria, of course, being the operative word at that time for uh, Northeast China, basically. So the area that did... House Unit 731, among other things, was uh, the area that uh, at that time was more commonly known as Manchuria. He had proposed, Shiro Ishii, the, the creation of a Japanese biological and chemical research unit in 1930 after he had taken a two-year study trip abroad on the grounds that Western powers were developing their own program. So it comes from a place of, of fear and paranoia, thinking that, and this is during a huge moment uh, in Japanese history, this is a big time when ja Japan is basically really heavily expanding its its empire um, and just going around and annexing tons of places. So basically, if we go back a little bit um, context-wise for Japan itself, um, back in the mid-1800s, Japan finally opens itself up to the, the rest of the world as it before had been basically a place that had closed itself off to the world and was very uh, xenophobic and segregationist. It was very much like, we are here, we are Japan, no one else can come here, this is all we're going to do. Um, interestingly enough, even though Japan is, is free 
for people to come and visit these days. There is still the uh, the small inklings of this attitude in Japan itself, uh, being as Japan is still like 98% ethnic Japanese uh, in their population and then various small degrees of, of other ethnicities, usually the biggest one being Korean, being the second largest one. Um, if I were to go over there, a white American male, uh, they would probably accept me very well. I mean, they're much kinder now uh, in the 2000s than uh, imperial Japanese, but in cultural context, I would always be gaijin. I would always be the the foreigner, the outsider. Um, in the mid-1800s, they opened their borders up because they basically feel like, hey, we can get stuff by trade. We can get, you know, th- stuff from the outside world. We just need to open up. Well, this, you know, started the big old hey, let's go just do shit at Japan era, and the Japanese eventually started to get sick of it. So in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s, Japan started to push people away from their island again and instead uh, expanded their imperial and military presence throughout Southeast Asia. They started taking all sorts of ocean and island area, and the Japanese Empire by the 1930s, which was still expanding before the beginning of World War II, was pretty formidable, pretty large, and covered a great swath of of area on Earth. Which leads us back to the original point that I was making, and Shiro Ishii being sort of paranoid about Western powers developing their own programs. Japan finally is a world player and is afraid that because they themselves are thinking about doing terrible things that, of course, if we are thinking about doing terrible things, that must mean that other powers in similar respects or even more powerful, like, say, the United States or uh, uh, the United Kingdom or France or anyone who would be considered in in a similar power level as Japan at the time would be also wanting to do something with uh, biological and chemical warfare. So Ishii establishes... Uh, Unit Togo, this is the predecessor to Unit 731, on the Zongmagna Fortress, which is a prison experimentation camp in uh, Beiyan Village. A jailbreak in the autumn of 1934 and later explosion, which was believed to actually be an attack in 1935, led Ishii to shut down this fortress, and then he received authorization to move to Pingfang, approximately 15 miles uh, south, where he would set up his much larger and much more sinister facility, which would become known, of course, as Unit 731. So 1935 is the uh, the nexus, the original point of Unit 731's official beginning as this gigantic campus of death, basically. Emperor Hirohito, the next year, authorized by decree the expansion of this unit and its integration into the Kwatung Army as the Epidemic Prevention Department. Of course, that is just a very crappy cover for what it really was, but that is the way it was put out by Emperor Hirohito. Uh, It was divided at the time into the Ishii unit, Shiro Ishii's, and the Wakamatsu unit um, uh, uh, to the next door section of there. Um, From this, basically, they, they continued doing their chemical warfare development, and their biological warfare development. And terribly enough, medical doctors and professors from Japan were attracted to become part of Unit 731 to do their work at Unit 731 because of the rare opportunity to conduct human experimentation. And of course, 731 had a strong financial support from the nation of Japan and from the army Itself, So you basically have all these things coming together to form this just awful thing. And the worst part about it was it wasn't even that clandestine in nature. You didn't they didn't feel the need to cover up what they were doing to anyone. Now, of course, there was cover up. You were going to have cover up when it came to um the, the people who weren't Japanese who were going to, you know, think about it and, and see these sort of things later on. But within the Japanese government and the Japanese army, they, they knew exactly what was happening at Unit 731 to the point where obviously other people wanted to come and be a part of the whole thing. So it was a really it was a really bad deal 
when it came down to it. So what what did this all sort of look like from the top down? Basically, Unit 731 was divided into eight different separate divisions that were separated by what they were going to do, what they were going to study, what they were going to uh, undertake with their experimentation. Uh, division one, probably uh, the worst division, was the research on bubonic plague, cholera, anthrax, typhoid, and tuberculosis using live, live, that's the key word, that's the operative word, live human subjects. For this purpose, a prison was constructed to contain around three to 400 people because, of course, you're not going to find even a single willing human subject to undergo any of this bullshit. Division two was research for biological weapons used in the field, in particular the production of devices to spread germs and parasites, so uh, biological warfare. Division three was for the production of shells containing biological agents. Division four was the uh, place where they did bacteria mass production and storage, like bubonic plague and other things. Division five was for the training of personnel, both army and medical and uh, scientific personnel, and Division 6, 7, and 8 were all different divisions that did equipment, medical, and administration. So that probably took up a great deal of the buildings on the campus. You know, paperwork and bureaucracy, you, you can't escape it no matter how, you know, human experiment you want to get. It's always, it's always going to be there. And then the rest of it was basically, you know, between, hey, diseases, and then, hey, chemical warfare. And, oh, by the way, oh, by the way... We got a whole bunch of humans in here that we are going to do these experiments on. And speaking of these experiments, who who were the Japanese of Unit 731? Who were they going to do these experiments on? They must have a particular crowd, or at least they must have prisoners in, in, their, in their captivity that they were going to be the ones actually undertaking these terrible, awful things. Well, according to A.S. Wells an author that studied uh, Unit 731 and its aftermath, the majority of victims were mostly Chinese, including accused, quote, bandits and communists, because you got to put a label on something before you can capture them. That's just what humans do. Most of the time you don't capture somebody, just say, hi, you're my prisoner for no reason. Usually you give them at least a bullshit facade, and then you capture them. Um, And also Korean and Soviet people, although there may have also been and probably were European, American, and Australian prisoners of war among those having the experiment. But by far, the majority were Chinese uh, people in the countryside uh, around this Manchuria area. Those who did participate in Union 731, who did a test later on, also agreed that most of their victims were Chinese that they experimented on, while a small percentage were Soviet, Mongolian, Korean, and then, of course, other allied POWs. Almost 70% of the victims uh, who passed away in the Pingfang camp were Chinese, both civilian and military, and close to 30% of those victims were also Soviet soldiers or civilians. Uh, Randomly in there were some other Southeast Asian and Pacific Islanders, in addition to various others the Japanese may have picked up during their extremely quick imperial expansion during the 1930s into the 1940s. So how were they testing and exactly what were they testing now that we know about the facility, now that we know about where it is and who they were testing it on, what exactly were they all working on in Unit 731? Uh, In the biological warfare side of things, Japanese researchers performed tests on prisoners, live prisoners, mind you, with bubonic plague, cholera, smallpox, botulism, and of course a a variety of other smaller diseases, but those were the big ones. Uh, Their research led to the development of the defoliation bacilli bomb and the flea bomb which were used to spread bubonic plague that was going to be their that was going to be their their big thing they were just going to spread terrible awful black plague onto areas uh that they were you know in in combat with or you know just as a matter of total war you can spread these bombs into even civilian sectors and just fuck people up real bad and let it happen and you don't have to worry about it it's a set it and forget it sort of situation 
these bombs uh, enable Japanese soldiers to launch biological attacks infecting agriculture, reservoirs, wells, and other areas. Uh, they would do it not only with bubonic plague fleas, but they would also do it with anthrax. They would do it with typhoid. They would do it with dysentery. They would do it with cholera and, of course, a bunch of other deadly pathogens. Literally anything that fucking sucks and that you could die of in the Oregon Trail, they were using to try to kill a bunch of random people, mostly civilians, but also could be used in the context of war as well. During these biological bomb experiments, researchers would dress in protective suits and would go and examine the dying victims. Literally, like in E.T., they come in in spacesuits and all these poor people who did nothing wrong at all are suffering at the hands of these attacks. And these guys are just going up and just poking at them and seeing, you know, hey, what's it like down there that you're, you're, you're dying of bubonic plague? What's that like? Tell me what that's like, guy who I'm experimenting on. Uh, infected food supplies and clothing were then dropped by airplane into areas of China not occupied by Japanese forces because that was just a big giant middle finger by the Japanese. They would just go, hey, there's an area of China that uh, Japan doesn't have. How about we just drop a bunch of fucking plague blankets, basically, into this forest and just kind of see what happens. In addition, poison food and candies were given to unsuspecting victims, and then the results were examined because it's just a big science experiment when you kill people and you literally care 0% about their lives as opposed to your life. And in, in, in reality, interestingly enough, during the final months of World War II, Japan actually planned to use plague as a biological weapon against San Diego in California, here in the United States, the plan was scheduled to launch on September 22nd of 1945, but very fortunately, Japan had surrendered five weeks earlier, after the United States did its own sort of awful thing by dropping two atomic bombs onto Japan itself, although after you hear about what they do to the people in this episode, you may not think it's entirely justified, but eh, the spectrum does move a little bit towards that. For sure. In addition to biological warfare, there was a great deal of other type of things that the Japanese at Unit 731 were doing. Uh, in addition to messing around with uh, those terrible pathogens that, that would spread like cholera and dysentery, the other things, prisoners were also just straight up injected with diseases like untreated venereal disease like syphilis and gonorrhea among other things and they were basically told that they were being uh, injected with vaccinations to study the effect of the vaccination of course this was a lie these were not vaccinations these were uh these were terrible things that were basically just given to them a a, a variety of different diseases just to see of course what would happen uh it didn't help that some of these people who weren't infected with things like syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia were also being terribly and utterly raped by prison guards who would probably then spread and give those same exact sexually transmitted diseases. Speaking of terrible sexually transmitted diseases and uh, the awful things that follow, uh, our old friend Syphilis makes another appearance in uh, the podcast this month. Um, but it not in the, you know, we're not going to treat your syphilis sort of way, uh, more in the, hey, we found somebody who has syphilis, and we are going to force you to have sex with that person so that now you get syphilis so we can see what happens. Doctors would orchestrate forced sex acts between infected and non-infected prisoners to transmit this disease as the testimony of a prison guard on the subject of devising a method for transmission shows. And that shows in quote, I will read the quote here. Quote, infection of venereal disease by injection was abandoned, and the researchers started forcing the prisoners into sexual acts with each other. Four or five unit members dressed in white laboratory clothing, completely covering the body with only eyes and mouth visible, handled the tests. A male and a female, one infected with syphilis, would be brought together in a cell and forced into sex with each other. It was made clear that anyone who resisted would be shot, unquote. After these victims were infected, they were then vivisected at different stages of infection so that internal and external organs could be observed as the disease progressed. So that's another thing. Uh, probably the most terrible part of Unit 731 was the fact 
that live vivisections took place all the time, all the time. If you can think of something more horrific than a live vivisection, I I don't know how many things are more terrible than that. A live vivisection is basically what happened to Mel Gibson's character in uh, Braveheart. So basically, a vivisection just means a a a cut or a, a a giant transverse section right down the the middle of the abdomen, usually from around the neck area down to the bottom of the abdominal area. The the physician in charge and a bunch of others around them would basically plunge a a scalpel blade into that area and cut all the way down the very alive and very not anesthetized person, cut them open, open them up, and then just start fiddling around on a person. Fiddling around on a person just to see what was going on. And in the case of syphilis, like we're talking about, but it goes you know, with, with every other thing that they're doing, they just wanted to see, hey, what's it look like inside the body when this this uh, disease is taking hold? How about we uh, cut this person open? They've had syphilis for uh, a week. We're going to cut this person open. They've had syphilis for uh, a month. And we're going to cut this person open. They've had syphilis for like six months. So let's just see how that all goes. By the way, we're basically going to treat these people like they're complete and utter animals. And we're just going to cut them open. And, you know, despite all the horrific, awful screaming and blood-curdling you know, insanity that is overtaking these people. We're just going to completely and totally ignore that part, and we're just going to fiddle around. Hey, here's a human heart that's still beating. How about I just take that out and look at it? Uh, here's the liver. Here's the pancreas. Here's the stomach, and here's the intestines. Let's just muck around in there for a little while, you know, just to see because we're just curious. You know, we're real curious people. Let's just go ahead and see what what all this is about, and this is this is what would go on constantly with these people. And if you think the Japanese gave even one tiny little shit about the age and gender of their subjects, you should think again. A uh, youth corps member deployed to train at Unit 731, so a Japanese person, recalled viewing a batch of subjects that would undergo syphilis testing. This batch of subjects, by the way, is people. They're not subjects, they're people, but okay. Uh, that person, that Youth Corps member, was quoted as saying, quote, one was a Chinese woman holding an infant, one was a white Russian woman with a daughter of four or five years of age, and the last was a white Russian woman with a boy who was about six or seven, unquote. The children of these women were tested in ways similar to their parents, with specific emphasis on determining how longer infection periods affected the effectiveness of treatments. Basically saying that they took an infant, an innocent little baby who has no fucking clue what's going on, and vivisected and cut that little baby open, um, this baby being infected with syphilis, by the way, just to see what was going on, because Unit 731 is the most terrible place on Earth. Vivisection, of course, wasn't just a study syphilis in particular, it was also just a study, like I was saying, basically what the hell happens when we cut a person open and just see what they look like. So vivisection was like like the key of Unit 731. Like if there was a word that you should associate, like the uh, the crowning word, like if there was a flag of Unit 731, it should literally just show a person being cut in half. Like vivisection was the big, big thing. It wasn't the only thing, and we'll get into it in a second, it was not the only thing that they did at Unit 731, but it was one of the big things that they did not only would they look at things like syphilis in its various stages but they would look at all those other um disease vectors that we talked about before like bubonic plague cholera dysentery all that stuff they would see how it affects the body of various stages by cutting these people open and researchers it says here performed invasive surgery on prisoners to remove organs just to study the effects of disease and the removal of the organ from the human body and they said they had to conduct these while the patient was alive because it was thought that the death of the subject would affect the results they wouldn't just kill people and then cut them open they cut them open you know screaming and kicking and thrashing while still alive and while of course unanesthetized because you can't you got to see the you got to see what it's going to look like when we when we cut a person open 
and see where it would go from there. In addition to the uh, typical vivisection being done, sometimes prisoners would also have their limbs amputated in order to study blood loss. So they'd just come up and cut a limb off, and then they would just go ahead and see what happens, see how much blood they would lose, you know, at various, like they might cut off your your hand, then they might cut off your arm at the elbow, then they might cut off your arm at the shoulder, and in various places in between, just to see, you know, which was which and which was, was worse and terrible. Sometimes those limbs that were removed were reattached to the opposite sides of the body. For what reason? I have no idea. That was just a, a funny thing to do, I guess, that these doctors would just say, hey, we cut off your arm and you're bleeding like crazy. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and sew that arm onto the other side, just, I guess, to see what it looks like. Uh, some prisoners had their stomachs surgically removed and the esophagus attached directly to the intestines just to see what would happen when you ate food. Of course, this would be terrible because you didn't have the stomach to help uh, break down and digest that food. Um, parts of organs, such as the brain, lungs, and liver, were removed from some prisoners, like we say, just to see what would happen. Um, Imperial Japanese Army Surgeon Kin Yuasa suggests that the practice of vivisection on human subjects was widespread even outside of Unit 731, although very much inside Unit 731 as well. Estimated that over 1,000 Japanese personnel were involved in this practice. Uh, so it was definitely not just 731 that was doing it, but they were humongous perpetrators of this particular type of surgery in addition to these other types of surgeries that were just literally, I can't think of a better way to describe it than fucking terrible. Sometimes they would also do what's called frostbite testing. Physiolo physiologist, excuse me, Yoshimura Hisato conducted experiments by taking captives outside, dipping various appendages into water, and then allowing that limb to freeze. Once frozen, the researchers would just take a wooden stick and basically just hit those people on those uh, affected limbs, and they said it was mostly to see if it was actually uh, sufficiently frozen, um, you know, because they said, oh, you know, if we hit your frostbitten frozen limb with a stick, it's going to sound like we hit another stick. So that's how we know how it's frozen. When really, I think they were just having a sadistic little time, fun little time banging a stick against somebody who had, you know, their arm frozen against their will. But either way, then ice was chipped away and the area was then doused in different uh, temperatures of water. The effects of different water temperatures were tested by bludgeoning the victim to determine if any areas then were still frozen. Variations of these tests in more gruesome forms were performed, like things where they would combine this type of testing with the amputation testing that we just mentioned before. In addition, sometimes these people were just trotted out to uh, various stakes, pounded into the ground, and were then uh, treated to a vast uh, barrage of different things while tied to the stake just to see what would happen. For example, they might trot two or three people out into the yard, time to a stake, and then lob a live grenade into the middle of them just to see what would happen if a grenade blew up and, you know, hurt a bunch of people. And, you know, they could test, you know, oh, hey, this person was like three feet away from the grenade when it exploded and they're like straight up dead and this person was like 10 feet away and they're like not dead but really gonna die and so on and so forth so literally just you know grab three or four people time to a stake throw a grenade at them just to see what would happen they would also test things like flamethrowers on humans in the same way so tie some people to stakes and shoot them with a flamethrower just to see what would happen they would also tie these people to these stakes and use them as targets to test things like germ releasing bombs chemical weapons and other types of exploding shrapnel type bombs other things they might do uh they took some of their subjects uh and basically just put them in in cages and deprived them of food and water just to see what you know what it would be like if somebody starved or died of thirst just to kind of see how long it would take what would happen uh, they placed some people in the high-pressure chambers until they died, so just increasing the pressure until it basically blew their brain up, so that's pretty terrible. Uh, they would often experiment upon them to determine the relationship between temperature and burns and human survival therein. 
Uh, sometimes they would place them into centrifuges, centrifuges, excuse me, it's a, it's a word, and spin them around at extremely high G-forces until they died. Um, honestly, that would probably be the best way to die here because you would just eventually pass out and you would die. So if, if you had to pick a way at Unit 731 to die, the centrifuge was probably the most humane. Um, other things they would do, they would inject them with animal blood just to see what that would do, expose them to lethal doses of X-rays and gamma rays, just to see what it would do, and subject them to various chemical weapons inside gas chambers. Uh, sometimes they would just, I guess, inject them with seawater and burn or, most horrifically, bury them alive. Again, the theme, just to see what would happen. Probably, when you look at the prisoner population of Unit 731, nobody was safe. There was always just, it was terrible, no matter who you were, but... In addition to being just terrible, it was more terrible for female prisoners, and, and that's just like a theme in life. It's if you are a female and you are in some sort of captivity, your existence is going to be worse than a male's existence because you are often also going to be forced into some sort of rape or terrible sexual assault in addition to all the terrible things that are going to go on in those places anyway. In some of the most terrible stories that come from Unit 731, female prisoners were often forced to become pregnant for use in experiments. The hypothetical possibility of vertical transmission of diseases like syphilis was the reason that these Japanese doctors said, hey, we're doing experiments because we want to see if this woman who has syphilis that we probably gave to her through a forced sex encounter passes that on to the baby who, by the way, probably was put into her in a forced sex encounter because it's terrible. Uh, fetal survival and damage to mother's reproductive organs were also objects of interest to the doctors doing the studies. Uh, a large number of babies were born in captivity. Um, nobody really thinks that any baby survived, though, which is a very terrible, awful thing. Um, it basically shows that any time any of these women were pregnant, they often would die um, either before childbirth, during childbirth, or afterward, and their kids were often also, you know, mutilated and killed um, because of this. It's just the, the sick disgustingness of uh, the people in the unit. While male prisoners were often used in single studies, here comes the point, um, so that the results of the experimentation on them would not be clouded by other variables, women were sometimes used in bacteriological or physiological experimentation, sex experiments, and also, by the way, victims of sex crimes. There is a testimony by one of the unit scientists, one of the perpetrators, that served um, as a graphic rea uh, reminder of this particular reality. It says, quote, one of the former researchers I located told me that one day he had an ex a, a, a human experiment scheduled, but there was still some time to kill. It's a bad start. So he and another unit member took the keys to the cells and opened one that housed a Chinese woman. One of the unit members raped her. The other member took the keys and opened another cell. There was a Chinese woman in there who had been used in a frostbite experiment. She had several fingers missing and her bones were black with gangrene set in. He was about to rape her anyway. Then he saw her sex organ was festering with pus oozing to the surface. He gave up the idea and left and locked the door. Then later went on to his experimental work, unquote. Literally the fucking worst. Are you serious? It's just, I mean, it, it, there's no good way to say anything about Unit 731. It's, 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 a, it's a horror show. Um, befitting of 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 the type of horror movies you might see in the modern day. I mean, this was a literal like horror smorgasbord for these people perpetrating the crimes and those being having crimes uh, perpetrated against them. So you might say, you know, this was happening during World War II, and we all know how World War II ended with you know the Americans, at least the the Pacific theater where it was very much just the Japanese versus the United States and a few allies here and there helping out, but the vast majority on one side was Japanese and the vast majority on the other side was the United States. We all know that the Pacific Theater 
ended with a couple of atomic bombs being launched against Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, which which basically said, oh, hey, uh, the Americans have figured out how to kill a whole bunch of us really fast. We have to surrender now. And then basically America said, hey, um, we are just going to come in. We are going to make you, you know, get on your knees and beg us uh, to spare you. And then we're going to write you a new constitution and you're just going to do whatever we say um, forever. And to be completely honest, that kind of still is the way it is now. Uh, Japan doesn't have very much of a standing uh, military even to this day, although there is uh, with the populism going on in the world of the day. When I say populism, I mean right wingedness. Uh, there is definitely a movement in Japan to start to come back to this sort of, you know, when uh, sort of a make uh, Japan great again sort of situation in imperial Japanese circles, bringing them back to not being basically um, handcuffed by the United States, which they pretty much have been since World War II. Um, it is what it is. Now, like I said, you know how that how the war ended. The United States drops two atomic bombs on Japan. Japan says, Uncle, okay, fine, um, do what you want. We're we're done fighting you. Uh, the, this war is over. You might think, hey, cool. Now that the war is over, the uh, Allied powers are going to roll right into Japan and China, where they're going to liberate China, and say, hey, Look at all this terrible shit. Look at this place. Unit 7, what is this? Unit 731? Oh my God. Look at all the bullshit that went down here. Hey, guess what? It's time for a war crime trial. Ah, interesting, interesting that you would say that because that is exactly what did not happen at all. In the worst, worst part of the 731 story, uh, with the coming of the Red Army in in the August of 1945, so basically you have this a similar situation in Japan that you had in Germany. You have the Soviets coming from one side and the Allied powers coming from another side. Since the uh, the the Soviet state is so large, you had the Soviets in the in the Western Front um, coming in you know, against Germany and other European powers. Then you also had Soviets on the eastern side, which are coming in against uh, the Japanese. And since, you know, Russia is is butted up right against China, basically with Mongolia kind of stuck in there in the middle, they were able to move their way into the parts of Manchuria where Unit 731 was. So with the coming of the Red Army and the coming of the American Army, the unit had to abandon their work in haste, of course, because you know that what you're doing is wrong. That's the worst part of it all. They knew what they were doing was terrible and unethical and wrong and horrific and just awful. So, you know, they they they, they did nothing to really justify it during the time, even though they continued to do it. And then, of course, when somebody's like, hey, I'm coming for you, they're like, oh, shit, 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 we got to destroy the evidence, run away. They're they're trapped in between two gigantic armies coming for them. The unit had to abandon their work. The members and their families then fled to Japan. Shiro Ishii, remember him, the 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 big perpetrator of the entire situation, ordered every member of the group to take the secret to the grave, threatening to find them if they failed and prohibiting any of them from going into public work back in Japan. Um, they were also given potassium cyanide vials, you know, as, as a thing where if you're captured, you commit suicide by taking that. Um, skeleton crews of Shiroishi's Japanese troops, then still at 731, blew up the compound in the final days of the war to destroy any evidence of their activities. But most, in in total irony to extremely well-made Japanese construction, most of them were so well-constructed that they still survived somewhat intact. And then the most terrible part of the situation, among the individuals in Japan after its 1945 surrender was Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders, who arrived in Yokohama uh, in September of 1945 during surrender talks. Uh, Sanders was a highly regarded microbiologist and a member of America's Military Center for Biological Weapons. Sanders' duty at the time was to investigate Japanese biological warfare activity and war crimes. At the time of his arrival in Japan, he had no knowledge of what Unit 731 was. 
Until he finally threatened the Japanese with bringing the Soviets into the picture, little information about biological warfare was ever being shared with the Americans, even after having dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. That's sort of the society um, and the culture of the Japanese. You take everything to the grave, just like we talked about a few weeks ago with those Japanese soldiers um, being hidden till the 70s, thinking the World War II was still going on. That is the culture of the area you you would rather die than you know lose face uh, in any way and these men were like Shiro Ishii instructed them basically trying to take those secrets to their grave Sanders who was doing the threatening uh basically continued to threaten the Japanese and threatened them um with pers- uh, prosecution excuse me under the Soviet legal system because the Soviets were gunning for them hard as well Um, And after he made that threat, he did receive a manuscript describing Japan's involvement in biological warfare. He then took this info to General Douglas MacArthur, who was the supreme commander of the Allied powers at this point responsible for rebuilding Japan during Allied occupation. MacArthur then struck a deal with Japanese informants. He secretly granted immunity to the physicians of 731, including their leader, Shiro Ishii, in exchange for providing America, but not other allies, with their research on biological warfare and data from human experimentation. American occupation authorities monitored the activities of former unit members, including reading and censoring their mail. The U.S. believed that the research data was valuable and also did not want other nations, particularly those those pesky Soviets, to acquire data on biological weapons the tokyo war crimes tribunal heard only one reference that's it one whole reference during this tribunal to japanese experiments with quote-unquote poisonous serums on chinese civilians as we've heard already it is much more and much worse than that this took place in august of the next year 1946 and was instigated by a man named david sutton who was an assistant to the Chinese prosecutor. The Chinese are trying to get their comeuppance at this point. The Japanese Defense Council argued that the claim was vague and uncorroborated, and it was dismissed by the tribunal president, Sir William Wedd, for lack of evidence somehow. The subject was not pursued any further by Sutton, who was probably unaware of those activities uh, to begin with, even though he was digging with the Chinese to try to find them. Basically, the Americans found out the terribleness that was going on, and instead of basically doing the right thing and bringing these awful men like Shiro Ishii and his uh, collaborators up on trials against humanity committing war crimes, they said, we'll let you live and stay safe and we'll grant you immunity so you don't ever have to pay for any of your crimes. All you got to do is tell us what you did. Tell us all the terrible things you did with all those civilians. We don't even care if they were some of our people. We don't give a shit. You tell us what you did to all these people, and and we just want that. Don't share it with the Soviets, though. I mean, don't share it with that Stalin fella. Just just ignore them, even though they're definitely gunning for you because they know what you did, and they would uh, hang your ass high. D- d- don't talk to them. Instead, just talk to us. Tell us what it's like to uh to to free somebody's arm and then wrap it with a stick. Tell me what it's like to cut a person open while they're alive and look at their organs. Just tell us all that shit, and then uh, you guys are good to go. So give us info, and you're good to go. That's what America did. I mean, you should absolutely hate the United States government during this particular time because after an entire long-ass world war fighting against the Germans and the Japanese and, and others of the Axis powers, winning that war... And then turning around and just becoming just sleazy and shitty and it's just, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, how can you, how can you pretend you have the moral high ground when this is the way you act? When you find out of just the most terrible shit on earth was happening to these innocent people, you know, women and babies and stuff too. All that stuff was happening to them. You find out all that shit was happening and you just want to be like, hey, give us info and you get to be immune to the entire situation. After all that is said and done, under the American occupation, the members of Unit 731 and other experimental units were allowed to go free. 
one guy from Unit 1644, Masami Kiteoka, he actually continued to do experiments on unwilling Japanese subjects from 1947 all the way to 1956 while he worked for Japan's National Institute of Health Scientists, where he primarily primarily was infecting prisoners with rickettsia and mental health patients with typhus. Our main man, Shiro Ishii, as the chief of the unit, was granted war crime immunity from the U.S. occupation authorities because of his provision of human experimentation research materials to the U.S. from 1948 to 1958. Less than 5% of the documents were transferred onto microfilm and stored in the National Archives of the United States before being shipped back to Japan. Japanese discussions of Unit 731's activity began in the 1950s after the end of the American occupation of Japan. Um, in 1952, human experiments carried out in Nagoya City um, Pediatric Hospital, which resulted in one death, were publicly tied to former members of of Unit 731. Later in the decade, journalists suspected that the murders attributed by the government to uh, Sadamichi Hirasawa were actually carried out by members of 731. In 1958, Japanese author Shisaku Indu published the book The Sea and Poison about human experimentation, which brought to light what happened at Unit 731. In 1981, the first direct testimony of human vivisection in China by Ken Yasua took place. Since then, many more in-depth testimonies have appeared in Japanese. In 2001, a documentary named Japanese Devils was composed largely of interviews with 14 members of 731 who had been taken as prisoners by China and then later on released. The official government response in Japan was very lukewarm on the subject. Japanese history textbooks often contain only very vague references to Unit 731, but do never go into detail about any allegations, and that is what they call them. They call them allegations instead of fact. The New History of Japan includes a detailed description based on officers' testimony, and that's about as far as you're going to go, although the Ministry of Education attempted to remove that passage because they didn't want that to, you know, bring shame to the Japanese uh, culture. You may also be very unhappy to know that the second-in-command, uh, Masaji Kitano of Unit 731, uh, was repatriated back to Japan in 1946 like they all were, and then lived to the ripe old age of 91, where he died on May 17th of 1986. He uh, uh, did some work for Green Cross, which was a... Um, pharmaceutical company in Japan and actually worked his way up pretty high in the ranks because, you know, uh, all the bad shit he did apparently didn't matter at all. You will also be extremely upset to uh, to learn that our main man, Shiro Ishii, also was not punished for what he did and, in fact, may have spent some time here in the continental United States in Maryland doing some work there. He also probably spent some time in the Koreas during the Korean War doing work there. Apparently, he started a clinic in Japan after this is all said and done where he did examinations and treatments for free, probably as a matter of penance. Um, apparently, he was especially concerned with the health of children. <coughs> Bullshit. You can't be concerned with the health of children when you are in charge of cutting children in half and seeing what happens to them? He apparently also kept a diary, but he never did make any reference to his wartime activity. And fortunately, he died of throat cancer at the age of 67. I say fortunately because fuck this guy. He deserves much worse than throat cancer. And apparently, according to his daughter, converted to Catholicism right before his death because that's going to do you a whole heck of a lot of good. Shiro Ishii, you fucking monster. So there you go. There ends June and the terrible story of Unit 731 to bookend our month of awful human being activities. And now, of course, it's time for your fact of the week. There's this really strange phenomena in Korea where people think that if you keep a, a, a fan on, an electric fan on in a room where the windows and the doors are closed, that eventually you will die. 
It is a phenomenon called fan death, and every Korean uh, uh, tabletop or floor-mounted type fan that is sold always has what is called a sleep timer on that fan, and this is considered a life-saving function for these fans. It is based on a completely and utterly bullshit misconception that somehow, if everything is closed, the fan will somehow knock all of the oxygen out of the room, and you'll be left with a bunch of, of high concentration of carbon dioxide, which will, you know, kill you eventually. This is, of course, total bullshit, but there's a huge uh, Korean uh, culture thing around fan death. Interesting. Fan death. And we come to the very end of this somewhat longer episode of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, I have been Kyle, your host. You can find me on social media places. For example, Twitter. You can find me personally at Kyle Steinhauser. You can find the show's Twitter handle at The Couch Pod. You can find our group on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch podcast and you can join the hundreds of fans of that page. Somehow there are hundreds of people who decided to like that page for some Good goddamn reason. You can find this show anywhere podcasts can be found. I won't list them all here. You know what they all are by this point in time. If you have a way to access podcasts either on your computer or on your phone, you can find this show. Just search Knowledge from the Couch. If you are already a, uh, a, a loyal longtime listener, you should tell somebody else about the show, and then they can listen to it for a while and see what they think. They probably won't think much of it, but hey, uh, a listener's a listener, and we're just going to... We are going to do that whole thing. Uh, next episode that you are going to hear will be the first episode in the month of July. That will be the prequel to July. And then we will go through uh, what we are going to do in July, um, the plan going forward with July and August, and the break we're going to take in the month of August, and everything I plan to do then, and everything in between as well. So go ahead and uh, mark your calendar for your every Friday action you will get another episode uh, 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 the Friday after this one, which will detail the future of the show for the next couple of months. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Please be nice to each other. Do not do the stuff that I just talked about in this episode. That would be awful. Instead, be super nice to each other. Maybe give each other hugs. Uh, give each other some flowers, some nice cards that have some really uh, nice missives in them. Maybe give each other a puppy or a kitty. And of course, even after doing all that stuff, guys, live long and prosper. Get away, get away now Too many games and they all trying to play out Too many people and they all start to change now Let me take a bet, they gon' know my name now Yeah, we came a long way, but it's one way Got a long way to go like it's Monday Someday, gotta be in LA No, I gotta make it work out like chess day Yeah, we just young and we live and we doing it right over here While you missing just me and my homies We running the city, not worry about blowing these hundreds and fifties Cause when you get caught up in money, it's fake The happiest thoughts end up going to waste I got all my people, they holding me down They all coming with me when I got the crown Now on the map now when I